I hope that's true. I hope you have put your faith and trust in Jesus. This passage today is going to challenge us with an example of those who have and those who haven't. I hope that you can sing that song with this church in faith. It, it is what that song says it is. It is resurrection. It is life. I hope that I hope the lyrics of that song are, are something that you can sing. And if not, I hope after our time in God's Word today, maybe they could be. Because uh, I'm not naive enough to know or to believe that uh, narrow is the way. And so there are a lot of people in this church family and those who watch online, and there might be somebody here who is not yet on the way. There'd be nothing better than knowing that you come to know Christ as your Savior today or later this week. But we trust that as we plant the seeds, God will grow it. And uh, if not today, maybe tomorrow. So we finished a series in the book of Jonah last week. I, I loved our time in Jonah and wish that it could go on. Because if nothing else, it's both fun and terrible to see yourself called out in Scripture. <laughs> As you see Jonah uh, first get called to go to Nineveh and call them to repentance because they're going to be destroyed. They're going to be judged by the wrath of God for their evil ways. And he runs the opposite way as Pastor Nathan taught. He boards a ship and goes west, away from Nineveh. And then God provides salvation for Jonah against Jonah's own wishes. Jonah's thrown in, into the sea uh, as, as God calms the storm and a fish is appointed to swallow Jonah. And as you know, Jonah comes to, I think, as close as repentance as he can in the belly of that fish as he prays out to God to save him. And God does. God shows the beginnings of this grace, this grace for when you're in over your head to Jonah first by saving him and causing him to be spit out of the fish onto dry land. And then later he does go. I would say he's more compliant than obedient and ministers in Nineveh and speaks a sermon that shows Nineveh what's ahead. In 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. And Nineveh broadly repents and comes to follow God. The Lord takes control over Nineveh and in their hearts and, and they follow the Lord. And then Jonah kind of ends on this cliffhanger of Jonah being asked a question by God. Aren't, aren't people more valuable than cattle? Aren't people more valuable than cows and sheep? That's tough, and it's kind of a cliffhanger. You'll hear that phrase today, actually, in our conversation. But Jonah ends on a cliffhanger, and, and he's not really mentioned a whole lot more in the rest of Scripture. Plenty of prophets come and go in the Old Testament and are often talked about in the Gospels and in the epistles of the New Testament. But Jonah is only mentioned a couple few times, and they're mostly the same situation told by a couple different Gospel authors. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 12 today to look at one of those examples of when Jonah's brought back up, because it's who Jonah points to that Jesus wants you to be thinking about. And it's what Jonah points at that Jesus wants his hearers to be focused on. So we're jumping in mid-chapter, but Matthew chapter 12 is kind of an interesting uh, a climb of tension between Jesus and the Pharisees. If you remember stories of Jesus' ministry in Galilee and in Israel, he kind of has this Pharisee paparazzi that follow him along and look for ways to entrap him and challenge him and criticize him. And in Matthew chapter 12, you see kind of their plot comes out. Their heart is shown in the verses in chapter 12 because it actually says something like they want to now destroy him. 
Their desire is actually to destroy him. The chapter begins with them calling out the disciples for picking pieces of uh, grain out of a field as they walk and say, look, they're, they're breaking the law. They're working on the Sabbath by eating this Galilee grain as they walk. And Jesus kind of recalibrates the truth about the law and the temple. And he says something that's a theme in this passage. Something greater than the temple is here. And then something else happens where Jesus heals a man with a withered or deformed hand on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees ask if it's legal or lawful to heal somebody on the Sabbath. And that's where Jesus says, hey, you'd, you'd save a sheep if it was injured or in trouble. Isn't this man more valuable than a sheep? There's a lot of parallels between the Pharisees and Jonah, and we could go further on that, but we'll continue so Jesus heals this man with a withered hand and starts to again point to he's a fulfillment of a prophecy in Isaiah 42. He's the servant come to save God's people. Then he does another healing and this really gets the Pharisees' attention. He heals a mute man who's also deaf and can't uh, and is possessed by a demon. Or a blind mute man, I'm sorry, who's possessed by a demon. And this is where a line that you probably are familiar with from this passage, even if you don't know where in the Gospels it falls, Jesus says, a house divided against itself can't stand. That's because the Pharisees, they're just trying to find a way to control and label and decide how they can feel about Jesus. And so now they've come to the conclusion, he must be working for the devil. Because, yeah, the devil would want people healed. It's as crazy as it reads. But they actually say, He's doing this by the power of Beelzebub. That's where Jesus says, think logically here. Would it make sense if I was doing things by the power of Beelzebub to be taking demons out of people? A house divided against itself wouldn't stand. And he gives the Pharisees a warning. It's by the words of your mouth you're going to be judged. The things that you say you're going to be held accountable for. See, it's not Jesus that's going to be held accountable by the Pharisees. It's the Pharisees in this unbelieving generation that are going to be held accountable by God. And Jesus, in his grace, warns them of that. And then they have another comeback, because it's the Pharisees, and they're just not satisfied. They can't control Jesus and make him do the things that he, they want him to do, teach things that support what they desire. Instead, he teaches what God desires for mankind. So in verse 38, we see their next challenge, and hopefully we have this kind of on-ramp now of seeing tensions building, and the heart of the Pharisee is pretty clear here. I think the message that Jesus has for the Pharisees in Galilee is the same as the message that he has for you and I, whether you call yourself a Christ follower and a Christian today, maybe you're one of those folks who hasn't yet repented and turned to him. He's calling to you in the same way he has spoken to the Pharisees. We're going to begin our reading in verse 38 together, but before that, let's pray. Father, your word is incredible. It's living. And right now, it's all I want them to hear. Use it to sharpen our senses to areas of our lives that need repentance and, and to be turned over to you. Help us to stop trying to control our lives like Jonah did and control you like Jonah did and like the Pharisees did and like we often do, Father. Help us just to turn things over to you, whether that be for the first time or renewing our commitment to follow you in repentance. We give you the glory for anything that happens along those lines in this church family and us as individuals and particularly for people who don't yet know your Son as their Lord and Savior. Just do that this morning through this text, through the ministry of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in verse 38, the Pharisees are, are speaking to Jesus. It says, Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, They're not answering. It's, you should read that as challenging. 
or try to convicting because he didn't ask them a question. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, does that word teacher or the way they're talking make you a little sick to your stomach after you see, like, throughout this chapter, they're, they're trying to argue with Jesus and then it outright says they want to destroy him? Are they listening to him as a teacher? No. Do they look up to Jesus? Not at all. But teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. As if what they hadn't seen, a man with a withered hand, a man with a demon get cast out, and stories that aren't even written in this chapter or come before it, everything they haven't seen or everything they've seen hasn't been enough. So they say, if you would just do a sign on demand, what we want, it will be. You and I both know it would never be enough. But he answers, in his grace, he answers them, you'll, you'll get a sign. But an evil, and generous, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Think of that in context of the Pharisees. In their eyes, the best of the best of the spiritual strongmen of Israel. They've got it figured out, and they follow the law to the T. And Jesus says, you're evil. Like the Gentiles you hate and spit on. Like these Ninevites I'm about to mention, you are them. You're not perfect. You don't have it figured out. An adulteress, the last thing you want is to commit to a relationship with me. You, pl- you, you play like you're faithful to God and you're following him only, but you're an adulteress. That same language is used for Israel throughout its history. It wanders away from God and he's saying, you are chief among the adulterers, you Pharisees. He says, this generation is going to be hold to, held to account, but it will get a sign. Verse 39, he says, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So there's different camps. As, as your Bible probably heads this piece of the text, the sign of Jonah, there's different camps in scholars and in commentators of what the sign of Jonah actually is. Before we talk about these couple of verses, I'll tell you kind of what those two camps are. And I think they're both pretty accurate, and you'll see where I think we land. First is that Jonah went to, his, to Nineveh and preached, and people repented, and their repentance was an affirmation that God was actually working through him as a prophet. Because he spoke and people repented, he was tru- truly a prophet. Now the Pharisees would have believed this. That's why Jesus speaks about one of their prophets. It's going to get their attention. So Jonah's preaching was effective because it garnered the repentance of the people of Nineveh. So the first sign of Jonah could be that if Jesus' preaching is effective and garners repentance, and we know it did because people left everything and followed him, chiefly the disciples turned away from their lives and followed Jesus. That's what, what repentance is. But if his preaching is effective, there will be repentance and people will follow him over doing things their own way. If you remember, recently we were in the Sermon on the Mount and we pointed back after the Sermon on the Mount to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, that was Christ's first call to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. So on one hand, scholars think that the sign of Jonah would be purely the fact that people will repent at the preaching of Christ and follow him. And you know from the gospel story that many people do, not chiefly the Pharisees, but even a few Pharisees do. There's another school of thought on the sign of Jonah, and I think this is the best application for us and and is true to what Christ says in verse 40. That Jonah typifies Christ in Jonah when he goes down into the belly of the whale, he's as good as dead. The sailors probably thought that as they cast him into the, the sea and God in his grace appointed a fish to swallow Jonah and preserve his life. 
But unlike Jonah, Christ is truly going to be killed. He's going to be turned over to men who are going to imprison him on false charges, execute him on a Roman cross, and bury him in a borrowed tomb. And Christ predicts his resurrection when he says in three days he's going to leave the heart of the earth, this tomb. See, we believe that as Christians. We believe that he truly was killed on Good Friday, which we mark and celebrate on Good Friday, and that he was buried in a tomb during the day on Saturday and rose on the first day of the week when the women went to the tomb bringing spices and aloes for his body because it was really dead. It was going to stink. It was doing what dead bodies do. And the tomb was empty, and he had risen from the dead, and then appeared to multiple witnesses afterwards. I believe, and I believe the text is true to say, that this is the sign of Jonah Jesus is speaking about. I'm going to prove who I am to you, this evil, adulterous generation, by the fact that I'm going to go down into this grave and in three days be rose back to life. Now, one question is, maybe this is the slowest we've read this text before or looked at it, is did he really do three days and three nights? And I wondered this. Like, I'm doing the math, and I'm notoriously bad at pulpit math, but that's when you do math in front of people. But there's a question about, does he spend actual three days and three nights? And if that's something that you're hung up on, um, what the commentators helped me understand is in Jewish language, you'd refer to a part of a day as a whole day. So for him to do a part of Friday was Friday. For him to do all of Saturday was Saturday, and for him to do part of Sunday was Sunday. Now, whether that's something you're hung up on or not, he did parts of three days. He did three days in the tomb. So I believe, and I think that the scripture shows that this is the sign of Jonah that Jesus is predicting, and I think that this is why it's so evil and adulterous that the Pharisees don't get it. Is along the way they've been asking for signs after signs after signs for Jesus. Just do the thing we want you to do, and we'll believe that you're the Christ. And he's saying in this kind of cryptic way, I'm going to do the thing you need me to do. Because if I call down smoke from heaven or lightning or cause an earthquake on demand or do any of these supernatural things that maybe you're watching for, Pharisees, and that's all I do, you will be condemned to hell for eternity. But instead, he offers them and offers us the sign that shows he's exactly who we need by doing the one thing we desperately needed. And that's dying, being dead, and rising from the dead. So he points to his death, burial, and resurrection by saying the one sign you're going to get is the sign that really matters. The response also is what matters. But before we get to that, he continues, the men of Nineveh in 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. There's that theme from this chapter. Something greater than the temple is here. Now something greater than even your prophet Jonah is here. And the men of Nineveh saw that as they heard Jonah's preaching. From the top down, they repented as a nation and followed what Jonah said. Turned their lives over, their whole city over to the rule of the Lord. Jesus says, they're going to testify. They repented and something greater than what they heard is here. There'll be witnesses when you're judged for, re for refusing this, this gospel, this good news. But he adds to this in verse 42. He says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So something greater than the precious temple and all of its laws and its ways to 
access God and have relationship with him through these carefully followed laws and something greater than the prophet who spoke directly for God and now something greater for one of their top two favorite kings, the wisest, richest poster boy for, for prosperity in Israel, Solomon. Something greater than all of these things is here. Jesus uses these examples as exemplars of people who responded to God working in their presence or in their lives, responded to the message of the Lord. Something against the Pharisees. Something that's going to cause, at judgment, is going to call out against the fact that Christ was there in front of them, working miracles, rising from the dead, and they continue to not follow him. And I ask you, if you're in that camp today where you haven't given your life over to him, how much more difficult will it be for us if we have the written word of the Lord in front of us, testifying in front of witnesses that he rose from the dead, and we don't, we don't respond? That's why this is so important and why we talk about the, the a creed song play, playing through the whole gospel story. We sing those lyrics because they're important gospel truths and remind us as a church, but also as witness, as evangelism to the lost, that this is the sign that really matters and your response is equally as important. So the central truth, if you're looking for something to kind of remember about this passage and then use as a lens to look at your life, is Christ's resurrection is a sign that demands a response that not responding to the resurrection is not an option. It may be one that you choose, but the Pharisees, you see how they're regarded by Jesus. They are as lost as the Gentiles that they hate, and they are walking alongside him, maybe following him for the entirety of his ministry. And they are not going to respond. Many of them are not going to respond to his resurrection. So for those of us who are here, whether we be Christians or, or have not yet followed after Christ and submitted to the gospel... This is a sign that demands a response. So how do you respond to Christ's work, this death, burial, and resurrection? First, it would be in repentance. Jesus uses the men of Nineveh to demonstrate this as the first example of the proper response. He says, and he's referring to what happens in Jonah 3, and I'll read that for you quickly here as we look at the response of Nineveh. The people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way. They believed, and now they repented. True belief is defined by, exampled by repentance. They're inseparable. Everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they had did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said would do to them, and he did not do it. So they repented, and God recognizes the repentance as one of the correct responses to his work through Jonah and relents from disaster that was promised in Nineveh because they, they, they repented. They believed and repented. The second way that, that you can respond to Christ's work in your life is with faithful hope, and this is mostly for those of us who call ourselves Christians. There's a way that what Christ did in his death, burial, and resurrection applies to every area of our life, whether it be the good things or the bad things. It keeps them in perspective. He points to this when he talks about the Queen of Sheba and her 
uh, the Queen of the South and her response to Solomon. The Queen of Sheba is mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 10. I'll read a couple verses about her here in a moment. But the region of Sheba is the southwest corner of the Arabian Peninsula, maybe part of Ethiopia. And in 1 Kings chapter 10, it recounts a story where after Solomon is kind of at the apex of his wealth and notoriety in the region, the Queen of Sheba travels with an entourage up to see him, to hear for herself what she's heard remotely. Is it true? Watch what she says here. She says to the king, the report was true. She's talking to Solomon in his court. That I heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came with my own eyes and had seen it. Behold, the half was not told me. It was better than I expected. She says, your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Who does she give credit to here? Not Solomon. She gives credit to the Lord. She says, I know who's working through you. It's truly the Lord who's made your nation prosper under your rule. He's given you success because he loves you. She continues, because the Lord loved Israel forever, he's made you king. This is one way that, that you see her saying what's true over what she's seeing. She could say, well, Solomon, you're a really wise king. You clearly studied up and prepared to be a king and have done pretty well on your own regard. But instead, she points to the Lord as working through Solomon, gives God credit. And she calls him to execute justice and righteousness. Sadly, if you know the story of Solomon, this is kind of his high point. And after the chapter 10 in 1 Kings, he kind of goes downhill. And it's a, it's a very cautious call to the people you align your lives with. His wives are what are pointed at. He married women from other nations that follow other gods, and they drew him away from the Lord. He made conscious decisions on his own to walk away from Yahweh and instead followed other gods. So this is kind of his high point, but the Queen of Sheba's response here is the example that she says, Solomon, God is working in your life. Here's the truth about what I see with my own eyes. And I think she's pointed to as an example by Christ for how we can do that too in our own lives. I was thinking about this as I was preparing for the sermon, and, and even last week something happened that I think would be fair to share with you that would be an example of, of how this happened, by God's grace, happened in my own life. Over the last couple of years, I've said goodbye to a couple of grandparents as they've gone home to be with the Lord. And as happens in that process, you go through all of the things that they leave behind, all the stuff that they own, and it gives you a very sobering realization that life is out of your control and fragile and finite as somebody you love dearly departs this earth and you are left with all of their stuff and we saw family divide up things and and share with each other different uh, knickknacks and housewares and treasures that we grew up seeing in their homes as we were kids and even last week I was taking with Sarah I was taking some of these things to a local ministry to donate and I was thinking about how you know this, this is what is going to happen with your life Brendan Someday people are going to be donating and garage sailing and inheriting your things. And it really kind of sobered me and pressed like a weight into my soul of like my, my loved one's life is now at this stage of their life. It's changing rapidly in one direction and it really initially kind of sobered me. But I believe it was what the Spirit of the Lord used to draw my attention to how hopeless I would be without Christ. 
I would be so hopeless if I only could consider how my life is going to come to an end and all my stuff is going to be left here and that's it. But then I was comforted by the Holy Spirit remembering, Brennan, remember how hopeless you'd be without Christ and how he gives you hope. He gives you hope all over, over your stuff during life, but over what happens after you leave this earth. What happens when you step into eternity, which eternity is a part of all of our lives. It's where you end up and where you head when you enter into eternity. So as I rode in the car, I was pretty quiet with Sarah, but I was thinking about, man, I would be so hopeless if it weren't for Christ. And I began to apply that truth, the truth of resurrection hope, over different things in my life that were still burdening me. This is the example that I want to give you. It's maybe something you can do to actually see like faithful hope and what that looks like. The example that came to mind is I have this little Kmart bench grinder, and I inherited this from my father-in-law. He's given me tools as he's helped me with things from time to time. Mine looks just like this, except for on the back, it's stenciled Johnston, because it was it was his. When he labeled that grinder, he proclaimed something that was true about that grinder, that it belonged to him. And it still tells me something. When I see it every time, I think of him and I think about how thankful I am for my father-in-law, how he's helped me with different things in life and tools that I've acquired from him, sometimes forgetting to return to him, but truly also been gifted to him. And I think every time I see Johnston over that tool or the wrenches I got from my dad with his name scribed on him, I think these belong to him. They were his, and he gave them to me, and he's helped me with so many things and how blessed I am to have these two men in my life. And it gave me this idea for what would happen to your marriage or your parenting or your addiction or your job or your church family or your home family or your hobby, every area of your life, if you just stenciled the truth of the gospel over that. So when you looked at that good thing, you said, thanks to be to a gracious God who's given me this. Or you look at that hard thing and say, man, I would be hopeless if it wasn't for Christ. But I have hope because I know him. I have hope because of the sign of Jonah that he who was alive and was killed and buried was raised again to life. I would be hopeless if it wasn't for Christ. And I think you could use that visual of taking whatever that is that you're thinking about now, particularly the difficult thing, and say, how is this different because of the gospel truth? Pastor Nathan does this with me all the time when him and I talk about things that I am in this interesting position of him both being my pastor, boss, and counselor often. And when he's talking with me, he says, how does the gospel speak to this topic that we're talking about? And I would ask you to do the same thing. Whatever it is that you're like, I'm waiting for God to do what I want him to do with this issue. Say, well, what has he already done? What has Christ already accomplished for me on my behalf and in my place that I could just kind of stencil over that? And look at it through that now and be reminded of the truth about that topic in my life. I think that would help you as it's helped me just to remember Christ did what we needed desperately. In spite of what we might want, he has done what we desperately needed. Don't be like the Pharisees where you missed that sign. So that's how we can continue to respond to Christ's work with faithful hope. Lastly, by living accountably. I know what you think. You, you say, well, accountability. Well, I think this text points to accountability, to judgment. And I am with you. Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But I think condemnation and judgment are different. And we hold to that truth that our condemnation, our punishment went on Christ. But I think through Scripture and, and even in our time in Ecclesiastes to come, we'll see that that doesn't mean there's no judgment. 
that we're called to respond in repentance towards God and live a life worthy of accounting. Because someday I believe we're going to do that. Jesus says this to the Pharisees. Hey, when you're held to account at the judgment, there's going to be plenty of witnesses that heard and saw the things you heard and saw and turned. I have a passage that I want to read to you from um, the book that we're going to read together here in a moment or in the next coming weeks as we go into Ecclesiastes that really reminded me about this idea of am I living a life worthy of accounting? Have I repented and followed Christ? Is all my hope in Christ truly to where it's producing a life worthy of accounting? Uh, Pastor David says in his book, Ecclesiastes says that a day is coming when some people will discover that they are not ready for the most important event in the world. And it won't be a dream. Their life has one long exercise in avoiding reality and ignoring what's coming towards them. Death and judgment are coming. The words of the preacher are meant to be like the hand on the shoulder that rudely shakes us from our slumber and ends the dream, bringing us back down to earth with a bump. And he closes this with a comfort to us as believers that, but for the believer, death and judgment are not things to fear. And while I agree with that and, and, and hold that in hope, I do think that Christ is pointing at the accountability for our response. That the central truth of this passage is that there is a response that you and I must have in our hearts towards the, the greatest sign that Christ could have done for the Pharisees and for you and me, his resurrection. And that, that will give you comfort as you wrestle with what Jonah wrestled with, that God cannot be controlled. And you then wrestle with what the author of Ecclesiastes is going to wrestle with, that neither can life be controlled. I hope that you have a response of repentance that gives you faithful hope so you can live a life worthy of accounting. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And um, being able to worship as a church, we, we see that that's a privilege. Father, and thank you for giving us that. Thank you for bringing your word to us. Continue to allow it to just press through our lives. It's my desire, Father, that I, my family, and this church family would live lives worthy of being accounted and that we would put our hope only in your Son and the gospel message that you sent your Son to die on our behalf and in our place, that you've accepted that sacrifice in our place which you proved, you demonstrated by raising him from the dead. And Father, help those of us who call ourselves Christians and followers of you to be comforted by the fact that not only did he raise from the dead, but that he now advocates in your presence on our behalf. Thank you for this church family and, and for um, this, this time together as a family. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.